0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together again today. We thank you for the rain that you keep giving us and help us not to complain against it but to be thankful for it. We do thank you and we thank you for your word and pray that you would help us to understand it and be, have our minds uh, softened, our hearts softened, our minds opened up and strengthened by your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in chapter 19 today. <clears throat> Moving right along, and i'm going to uh I'm going to do what I've done instead of reading the whole chapter for time's sake. we're going just going to read it by section by section as we go um, you might notice any of you seen that there's this picture floating around online of a horse that the the back end of the horse is very beautifully drawn <laughs> and then the further you get f- forward in the horse, it gets kind of a little more sketchy, and by the time you get to the front, it's like this two sticks sticking out the front. You, have you all seen that picture? Some of you see. I should, I should put it up on the screen. It's really funny. That's, uh, that's how these lessons go, right? Because I spend a lot of time with stuff that's interesting to me, and by the time we get to the end, we don't have time for anything else. Just Rrr! So that's what's going to happen today. So I've, I've decided to be okay with that. Um, so let's start with... Um, Verse 1, 19, 1 to 7. You'll see in this chapter a few different little things that happen and then we really settle into Ephesus. So you remember last week in chapter 18, Paul was traveling and he went through Ephesus in order to get where he was going and the, and the Jews in the synagogue in Ephesus said, please come back and teach us, All right? And he did. We'll see that this week. Uh, he he go he leaves then he comes back and he stays in in uh, Ephesus for some time we'll see how that turns out. All right, let's begin with chapter nineteen, verse one. <clears throat> it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so Apollos remember left from uh, Ephesus and went to Corinth. He was sent there basically by the church. And he's there watering the church that the Apostle Paul had planted. And so it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Okay, so first of all, here's where we are. We're back in Ephesus, so... It begins by saying Apollos is all the way over here in Corinth, and Paul is coming along this way, goes through what's called the upper country here, and then comes in to, and comes down to Ephesus. So that's where we are. This is, um, this is a strange account, okay? Here you have t- around 12 men, it says, at the end, whom Luke calls disciples up at the beginning, and yet they haven't received the Holy Spirit, and evidently they haven't even heard of him. Okay, now this, uh, this is weird. There's something we need to remember about the book of Acts that I said before. Uh, some of what we read in the book of Acts is describing weird situations not telling us what's normal because it's by definition a weird time. It's kind of a time between times. It's a transition time. And yeah, that can be a cop-out. In other words, you can say, well, you know, Christians, you know, loving each other and, and sharing everything they own with one another, uh, that, that's a weird thing and that's not normative for us. Well, no, actually it is, in a, in a sense. You know, there are all kinds of things that we could say, no, that doesn't apply, but they do. But the fact remains, there are things that are weird. And this is a unique time. There are unique things happening in the Book of Acts. The Day of Pentecost was unique, that's not, that doesn't happen every Sunday, you know? Uh, the gospel going to the Gentiles for the first time is unique, by definition. First things are unique, right? Uh, there are miracles and signs that are not normal. Um, we'll see some of that even today in the passage in chapter 19. And this is a time of overlap. Old things are passing away, new things are coming. And so that's what's going on here with these 12 disciples, Okay? So it says, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no. We've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So who were these men? We should assume, I think, that they're Jews because they're acquainted with the ministry of John, right? That doesn't mean that they were there when John was baptizing in the, in the Jordan River, this John would have been at least something like 20 years ago, okay? From the time that we are here in chapter 19 in Acts. This isn't, you know, last week. This, that would have been, John would have been 20 years ago. Um, but I, I would, I'm gonna assume that they're Jews. Uh, they're, they're disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, probably weren't personally baptized or personally, you know, discipled by John the Baptist 20 years ago, uh, all the way over in Palestine in the Jordan River. You know, here's Ephesus and here's the Jordan River down here. So I'm gonna assume that they weren't personally discipled by John. Maybe they were, but I don't think so. Uh, but they had been discipled by disciples of John. And that explains why they didn't know some of the main things that John himself actually taught. Because remember, what are some of the things John himself actually taught? Well, oh, I didn't put this in here. Let me just read it to you. Matthew 3.11, John said, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John, in his preaching, when he was baptizing, was teaching them about the holy spirit and he was teaching them about Jesus. You remember what John says, John the Baptist says when Jesus comes along and, and he points to Jesus, tells his disciples, John's disciples, the people who are following John, he tells Jesus or tells the disciples, "Look. See that guy? Remember what they say? What he says? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Follow him." Follow him, and so there were things about uh, the actual ministry of John the Baptist that these men up here hadn't didn't don't seem to be acquainted with so it's like a second generation kind of weirdness, okay um, The other thing here is that these men don't have the Holy Spirit. They haven't even heard whether there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Now that's weird. What does the Bible say about every Christian? What is one of the, one of the, one of the essential um, characteristics of someone who's a Christian? They have the Holy Spirit. All right, the, uh, Romans chapter eight says that. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to him right? So these men are, are something like almost Christians, okay? They're, they're this weird holdover, kind of overlap from John's ministry. They're certainly sympathetic and open and, and, and want to, they just don't know. And so the Apostle Paul tells them more of the truth. Yes, John? It's the same kind of thing you see with, with Apollos, but they're not linked together anywhere in the passage, even though it would be natural to do so because he mentions Apollos, then he goes on to these guys. So they're next to each other, but I don't know. It's the same kind of problem that Apollos had, maybe, but, but a little different. I think it's worse. I think Apollos knew Christ, and that's what he was doing when he was um, talking to the Jews. He was talking about Christ from the Old Testament, but you don't see that with these men. It's just a little different. Okay, so the Apostle Paul preaches to them, okay? No, we don't know, you know, what baptism were you baptized in? The baptism of John, John's baptism. And then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, now, I don't think this is a summary. This isn't. He said that one sentence, and then that was that, and they became baptized. Okay, there, this is a summary statement of him explaining to them that John was pointing. John was the forerunner, talking about looking ahead to Jesus. Jesus has come. He's the one he was pointing to, and he opens that up to them. And then they, when they heard that, right, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul explains to them that John told his followers to believe in Jesus, and when these men heard that message, then they also then believed in Jesus, uh, and Paul baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, just like he did at the other key times throughout the book of Acts, in a way that cannot be missed or denied, right? Right? In other words, there was a visible manifestation of the the Holy Spirit falling on these men. When Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. So there's this visible sign of the kind of thing that happens, the kind of thing that happened to the apostles themselves when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, the kind of thing that happened to Cornelius, the, the Gentile, centurion, the kind of thing that happened, you see this over and over again, but it's at weird times like this, by and large, that this kind of thing happens. Yep. You know, the amazing thing about that passage, that's the Lutherans love that passage. Oh, yeah, okay. the Holy okay. Spirit comes through the right arm of a bishop. Oh. If compare every passage uh-huh. in the book of Acts, there is no set pattern. Right. So, you probably couldn't hear Richard here. Um there is no set pattern of, of the order of things in, in throughout the New Testament, but especially in the book of Acts. It's not um, baptism uh, or laying on of hands, then Holy Spirit. I mean, with Cornelius, it was Holy Spirit, then baptism, okay? So there is no mechanical thing here where you, you do this and this and this and bam, the Holy Spirit comes. That's just not how it works. Jesus said the Holy Spirit, you know, is like the wind, blows wherever it wants, he wants. Yeah, there is no mechanical, sacramental kind of methodology here. Okay. So that's the weird thing about these guys, all right? You can, there's a lot more to say about this, but we're not, I'm not gonna take the time. Um, let's move on. Chapter, or verse eight. And so he's in Ephesus, all <clears throat> right? And he does what he always does. He entered the synagogue. And he continued speaking out boldly for three months. All right, so three months. That's what? uh, Twelve Sabbaths. Is my math right? Yeah. You know, a quarter. Uh, Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. He withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so here, again, he does what he always does, right? He goes into a city. If there is a synagogue, if there's enough Jewish male adults to have a synagogue, he goes in the synagogue. He is a rabbi. He's recognized. You have to wonder, Every time he goes into these synagogues, he ends up able, having the, having the floor, you know, having the podium, being asked and expected to teach. It's because he's, he's, he is a rabbi. He is, you know, a rabbi who is trained by the most highly respected rabbi in the Jewish world. And so, and, and people know this. And so when he, he comes into a town and goes to the synagogue, he's, he has a, a platform, right? And he's able to teach. And in this case, he's able to teach, it says, for three months, every single Sabbath. And he's reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. We're gonna come back to that in a minute. But then what often, or actually always happens again happens here, right? And we've seen this over and over again that we don't even need to talk much about it, but you see it over and over again, right? They become hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way. That's the, the way of Christ before the people. So they start talking against what the apostle Paul is teaching and trying to get the people not to believe it. And so, when that happens, instead of subjecting the new Christians to that kind of um, attack against their faith, right, he takes them out and goes to a place called the School of Tyrannus. This is probably um, kind of a lecture hall, a place, a, a school that probably taught philosophy. It was probably a Greek teacher. And, he, and the Apostle Paul was able to use his place, right? His building. He rented out the building or something and was able to teach for another two years uh, daily, not just every Sabbath, not once a week, but daily. So two years daily lecturing, you know, teaching, preaching the, the kingdom of God. So that this place took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, when we read Asia, don't think China or, you know, Japan. <clears throat> this is Asia Minor. This is Turkey. What we think of today is Turkey. It's a, it's a Greek or a Roman colony or a province. And so he, all that whole area, he, he, he camped out for two years in a major city where people are always coming and going And as a result, the whole region gets filled with the word of the Lord. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, that's obviously not technical language and it says all, but, you know, everywhere, pretty much everybody heard about Jesus. So that's wonderful. That's exactly what um, Jesus said would happen. Now, I want to slow down here and look at what he's doing here at the beginning in the synagogues, in the synagogue. It says four things about this. He enters into the synagogue and he is speaking out boldly, number one. All right, so that tells something about the way that he was speaking. Okay, he's speaking boldly. He's not trying to sugarcoat. He's not trying to hide. He's not trying to nuance and try to, you know, kind of get them on the same page and then kind of sneak it in, you know. No, he's speaking out boldly for three months. And then it says reasoning, number one. We've seen that before with the Apostle Paul. He's reasoning. He's taking the scriptures and he's showing them in the Old Testament, answering their questions, it's a, it's, it's kind of a back and forth, answering questions they're asking, he's answering, he's reasoning, he's, you know, talking, talking this through, and persuading. We saw that word again last week. Persuading is much more than just um, information. Persu- persuasion is a. When you're persuaded, it's more than just intellectual, isn't it? I mean, it's obviously partly intellectual, but there's something else. It's like, yeah, I get that. that I feel that. So it's more personal and intimate and, than just laying out facts. So reasoning and persuading them. And then lastly, about the kingdom of God. Yes. <clears throat> the approach to the Greeks be different than the Jews? Yes, generally. So she's asking... Is the approach to the Greeks generally different than the Jews, yeah? Where, where does he ever give us a, a picture of how he approached the Greeks? Where, you see, how did he approach the Greeks? You see that in Athens, in chapter 17. You see it before in Lystra. Okay, yeah. Okay, now, let's talk about this kingdom of God for a minute. This is the, f- the content of his bold speech. All right, do you see this? He's speaking out boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about, the kingdom of God. So how do we today typically, um, let, me, let me just think about, or ask, let me ask you this question. He is preaching the gospel, and yet, the way that it's described is reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. We're gonna, we've seen that. That's what it says about Philip way back early on. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Later on in the very end of the book of Acts, that's what it says Paul is doing in Rome. He's, he's, he's preaching the kingdom of God, okay? This is, a, this is kind of shorthand for something that really means preaching the gospel, all right? Now, think about this. How do we today typically think about sharing the gospel? How do we think about the gospel? How do we think about sharing the gospel? Let me give you a, a little s- sample of, and this isn't, I'm not, this isn't bad, but let me read this to you, okay? Typically, when we think about sharing the gospel, here's the, the, the message boiled down, right? You're a sinner, and completely unable to please God because God is just, he must punish sin, and so right now you're on your way to hell. This is, this is good. I'm not denigrating this approach at all, okay? But because he is also loving, he sent his, Jesus his son to die in your place. He suffered God's wrath so that you don't have to. If you turn from your sin and believe in him, you'll be forgiven and receive eternal life. Um, that is, I'm not trying to trick you, okay? That is a good, <laughs> that is a good solid, uh, yeah, evangelical, biblical summary of the Christian gospel, okay? I'm not picking that apart at all. Uh, all of it is true, but think about this. Is that all that Paul was saying in the Ephesian synagogue, is that, what, is, that, he just, is that what he's saying over and over? Is that what it means to preach the kingdom of God, to argue, to speak boldly, to reason, and to persuade about the kingdom of God? I don't think so, all right? Think of all the trouble that Paul got into throughout his missionary journeys. Is, is this sufficient? Now, I'm saying this is true, but is this sufficient to explain the response of hatred, fear, violence that he met over and over again, not just from other religions and religious leaders, but also from civil magistrates, which happens over and over again. This is a message of personal salvation. It's true. You can't, you can't go to heaven, okay, unless you believe this, the truth in that statement, all right? But is that... Is that it? What's the problem with this typical way of presenting the gospel? This gospel that is on the screen is small, right? It's personal, it's private, and it's individual. do Do you see what I'm saying? This is about you, your sin, and how you must Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, hope in him, and he will take you to heaven when you die. Now, all of that is true, and amen, okay? But it's small. The gospel that Paul preached was huge. The gospel that Paul preached was not individual, not merely individual, okay, but cosmological, How's that for a fun word? In other words, it's a gospel that encompasses the cosmos, the world, and everything in it. I believe that the mess we see today around us in Western society, do we have a mess today in Western society? All right, just checking, make sure we're living in the same world here. The, I believe the mess we see around us in the Western society is because the church gave up Paul's cosmological gospel in exchange for a little gospel, a truncated gospel. You know what it means to truncate? Chop down, shrunk down, tiny little gospel. Compared to the gospel that Paul was preaching, the American evangelical gospel is tiny. It has to do with you and what happens to you when you die, period, All Right. So, Paul's gospel, his good news, is about the kingdom of God. Now, this is what we see over and over again in the Bible, right? Jesus, when he first comes preaching, oh no, sorry, this is John the Baptist. When John the Baptist first comes preaching. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the language he uses the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's bigger than you don't want to go to hell when you die, do you? Now, you don't want to go to hell when you die. I'm not denigrating that in the least. But the mess, that's a small thing inside of the big thing Jesus himself. Of course, from that time, this is when he first comes on the scene in his public ministry. Jesus began to preach and teach saying, to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. You see this in the book of Acts, even on the day of Pentecost, okay? The, the message, the, the core of the message of the sermon in the, in the, uh, on the day of Pentecost that Peter preaches to the Jews has to do with Jesus and his kingship, his lordship, his authority. And so, this is Peter, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is from Psalm 110. That line, this quote right here, is from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted section of the Old Testament anywhere in the New Testament. That is what the apostles repeat over and over and over and over again in their preaching and in their writing. That is the summary of of what Jesus came to do. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what it is. And then he says... Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the message. It's not just a message of personal salvation. It's a message of the kingship of Jesus, the kingdom. All right? You see this in, in, even in the apostle Paul speaking to Gentiles, okay? Speaking to the Greeks in Acts 17. When he's in Athens, we saw this oh, two weeks ago, and he's preaching the Greeks who don't have the Old, Old Testament, but the message is exactly the same, right? Therefore, so this is the point of the sermon, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the authority of, Je- of King Jesus to judge the world. That's the message. Jesus Christ has come. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he has established his kingdom. And if you reject that, he will crush you. He will put you under his feet, Right? You see this in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 begins by saying, if you remember, and now this is the gospel that I proclaim to you, which you received and which you stand, that um, Christ Jesus, um, now I'm going to stumble. I don't have it in front of me. Died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. You know that passage, right? The summary of the gospel of the events of the gospel. And then he gets into the resurrection, and then he goes here. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Okay, the gospel is about the resurrection. If, if there's no resurrection, the death of Christ is meaningless, right? So this is why this is so important. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ set his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Psalm 110. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's, that's the message. The message isn't just, you don't want to go to hell when you die, do you? No, I guess I don't want to go to hell. Well, good. Well, here, pray this prayer. Now I'm, now I'm watering it down even from what was on the screen a minute ago, which is more common today but it's bigger, it's a kingdom, it's a Lord, it's a king, it's everything in subjection under his feet. Look at this, Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, God raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see this kind of stuff much, much, much more frequently in the New Testament than you do, you don't want to go to hell when you die, do you? Okay? It's this kingship, this authority, this magnificent glory of the Lord Jesus seated at the right hand of God over everything and everyone. Look at this. Colossians 1. God rescued us from the domain of darkness. So here you have, you know, salvation. We are rescued from the domain of darkness. Yes. But look at the language. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to what? The kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that's that, there's the blood of Jesus, there's the cross, there's repentance and faith, that we, there's the, the thing that we always want to shrink the gospel down to at, at the expense of everything else. It's there, absolutely it's there. But look, what, look at everything else around it, Right? In whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That means the, the absolute authority over all creation is what that means. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. For him. It's not about you. It's about him, right? And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So here you have this again, the blood of his cross, right? Redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the blood of his cross. But if you read this the way that we're used to reading things, that's all you see anymore. All that means, yeah, oh yeah, that's, that's that means we get to go to heaven when we die. That's all it means. You know? No, it's not all it means It's the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. This is what the, the Apostle Paul is, is spending months and years preaching, not just uh, if, if you die today you know, and you're standing before God and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? That's not what he's spending three months and two years saying over and over again. He's proclaiming to them the kingship of the Lord Jesus, exalted as head over all things for the sake of the church. One more passage. This, well, sorry, I'm lying to you. It's not one more passage. Uh, another passage. This is, in, this is the whole message of the Old Testament. All right, when, when Jesus, or when, when the Old Testament thinks about the Messiah coming. This is the kind of thing that it says. Sing to the Lord a new song. This is Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings, okay, gospel, good news, good tidings. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before him all the earth, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, indeed the world is firmly established, it will not be moved, he will judge the peoples with equity. That's the good news. That's the good news. The Lord reigns and he will judge. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul did in in Acts 17. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. And he reigns over everything and he's going to judge. That's the good news. Okay? It's bigger than just, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And then it goes on. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. You see what I'm saying by cosmological? We're talking about the trees and the, and the oceans and the fields and everything. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all it contains, let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy because they believed in Jesus and get to go to heaven when they die. No. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That's what kings do, they judge. This is, a, this is the gospel of the kingdom of, of God. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the whole world. It's not just for the world, it's for the cosmos, okay? So what's the main point in all these summaries of the good news? The good news is that God has now established his kingdom. God has now established his kingdom. This is why the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, in the New Testament uses that word. the, The word that we translate gospel, euangelion, okay, evangel, that's where we get the word evangel, or evangelism, or evangelical, evangel, euangelion, That word, um, the reason the Holy Spirit uses that word to summarize the message of Christ is this. This word that we translate gospel already meant something in the ancient world, already meant something to the Greeks. It was the good news of victory. It was the word gospel, good news was the word that was used to to declare a message of triumph, proclaimed on behalf of a savior who had brought order and harmony by taking dominion upon his shoulders. In other words, that's what would have been used for Caesar, the emperor. This is the good news of the emperor who has conquered his enemies and brought peace to his people. That was the word gospel. That same word the Holy Spirit takes and uses to proclaim the kingdom of Jesus. Because everyone would have known exactly what it was talking about. It wasn't, oh, that means I get to go to heaven when I die. I mean, you you do, that's, yeah, you do. But it's bigger than that. This is the background of the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why, well, because he's the king, his kingdom is here. Therefore go and make, or go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the background of the great consummation. you got the great commission, and you've got the great, at the beginning, you've got the great consummation at the end. Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. He, he will have put all of his enemies under his feet. Revelation twelve ten. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Wait, read that again. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. We read that and we think, yeah, salvation. I get to go to heaven when I die. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. The enemy, the ultimate enemy, Satan, is, is destroyed. That is what the Apostle Paul is preaching for three months, Sabbath after Sabbath, in the Jewish synagogue. It's really the message of the whole Old Testament fulfilled in King Jesus. And that kingship and rule and authority over all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of that is manifested here and now in this age, not only in the age to come, but also in this age. Okay? He is putting his enemies under his feet. And that's the message. That's the message that Paul is preaching over and over again. That's the message that keeps almost getting him killed. It's not Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's getting him almost killed city by city by city by city. There's another king, Jesus. And the implications of that are, are, are cosmological, not just personal and private. And there, are, uh, there we go. I've blown my whole time. Let me read, let me, let's read the rest of the chapter. How's that? The proof of that was evident for everyone to see in his ministry in Ephesus. Let's, look at what happens. Verse 11. God, not Paul, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons, now don't think he's baking uh, and he's got a little flour covered apron, he's a workman he's got a, and he's, he's a tradesman and so he has an apron, okay, that kind of apron. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Jesus Christ, head over all things every principality and power and dominion, he's conquered them. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had, who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So these were, they were using Jesus. These are not believers in Jesus. They're using the name Jesus as a magic word to, to you know, have power over demons or whatever. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish high, a chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered them and said, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on, uh, on them and subdued all of them. Seven. This is what happens with demons, okay? This is no joke. Remember the one in, in the gospels is breaking chains. No joke. And he subdued the, all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. The name of the Lord Jesus is not something you can trifle with and throw around like a little magic word to get what you want. That's, that's why the name of the Lord Jesus is glorified here, all right? Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. So these are now Christians who are convicted of their practices. What practices? And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Prevailing is a kingdom word. You understand? Conquering, winning, taking ground. 50,000 pieces of silver is what it says here. There are two pieces of silver this this could be referring to if it's a denarius. um, That was worth one day's wages for for an average worker, a day's pay. So that would make it in our number, in our money, $5.5 million worth of magic books burnt. Now, if it was the other piece of money, the other piece of silver, which is a talent, which is worth a year's wages, we're talking about $1.5 billion worth of stuff burnt. Books are very expensive. You don't get them on Amazon for $3.99. Okay? And they are willing to lay that down and burn it. Jesus has come He's conquered us and these demons and we are now being taught by the Apostle Paul to do everything he's commanded that Jesus, the Lord God himself has commanded which includes throwing off the magic arts which are real, by the way, not not some hat trick. Okay, keep going. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome and having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis was bringing no little business to the craftsmen These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. (laughs) Not only is there great danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship." will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Besides that, our money! When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him, would have got him killed. Also some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and, and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there? Uh, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with them have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available, let them bring charges against one another. This is a, a politician talking, Okay. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And then chapter 20, verse one, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had disordered them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. <laughs> we gotta be done. There's a lot of stuff there, but hey, like I said, this is where it gets to the stick figure. Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work in us, strengthen and deepen and broaden and expand hugely our vision of the gospel and what it means, what its implications are. Help us to think about this and understand it and live out of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.